Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network in Sex, Sexuality, and Sex Work. I'm Victoria Holt, and I'm a PhD student at the University of Roehampton, and today I'll be talking with Nikki Smith, Senior Lecturer in Political Science at the University of Birmingham. We're going to be talking about her new book, which came out last year, titled Capitalism, Sexual History. How are you doing today? I'm really well. Thank you so much for uh, talking with me today. Oh my God, it's my absolute pleasure. I'm um, I'm really excited because I think as soon as I read this book, I emailed you just telling you how much I loved it. And the first, no, it's wonderful. And it just, I read it in I think about a week because it doesn't read like a weighty academic textbook. But the first thing I want to ask is the first words in the book right at the top of the acknowledgements was you saying that writing the book has a really long history. So can you maybe tell us a little bit about yourself, your previous research and how this book came to be? Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your kind words. Um, (laughs) It was a really uh, hard process writing this book. So I've got that as the first uh, line because it was such a struggle. It took um, uh, I think over a decade to um, come to fruition. Um, but in terms of, I guess, the sort of the backstory, so I was uh, trained in the field of international political economy or IPE, but I wasn't really focusing on anything really to do with gender and sexuality because I'd been trained to think about uh, the global political economy in terms of these really abstract entities called states and markets. So with the political bit meaning states and the economic bit meaning markets. And so there wasn't really any space there to think or write about uh, messy stuff like bodies and sexuality. But out of outside of academia, the stuff that I really cared about was the gender and sexuality stuff. And I was really lucky that this brilliant scholar called Laura Shepherd came to work in my department and introduced me to um, tons of feminist writing. And so through that, I discovered uh, the incredible work of uh, people like Shirin Rye, Spike Peterson, Anna Angathangelou and Gillian Youngs. And they painted a completely different picture of uh, the global political economy, so global capitalism. And they they painted a picture not of kind of abstract states and markets, but of um, a sphere with a real actually existing human beings uh, inhabiting it. And they began with rather than erased embodied inequalities, not just uh, gender, but also sexuality, race, disability, territory and so on. And this completely shifted my thinking and opened up a whole new world for me. Um, in terms of how to think about global capitalism. So that was the field of feminist political economy. And this 
book very much emerged out of that journey and it wouldn't have been possible without uh, the contributions of all of these feminist political economists. But at the same time, kind of separately, at least in my own thinking, I started to uh, discover queer theory and a really important influence here was Lisa Downing, who also joined uh, my university. And she's obviously made so many incredible contributions, but the biggest influence for me has been that she really opened uh, my mind up to how valuable it is to engage in historical analysis. Um, And then at the same time, and again, quite separately, I was beginning to write about sex work as something that really animated me politically, for example, doing uh, the Queer Sex Workbook uh, with Mary Lang and Katie Pilcher. And I, I felt very animated politically by sex work because for me it's completely bound up with the question of marriage. I've never been married. I'm anti-marriage. And I think that the moral condemnation of sex work serves the purpose of being a massive distraction uh, from the fact that women's subordination is founded on uh, the institution of marriage. And, you know, for that that matter, the marking out of other sexualities as deviant has also served marriage as well. Absolutely. So, so, so over time, the book took shape out of these kind of various threads pulling together, but sometimes kind of pulling against each other. So feminist, political economy, queer theory, sex work and marriage, um, and ultimately, you know, trying to explore how these these different histories intersect. Cool. Could I could see Lisa Downing's influence in the book. I'm a huge fan of of her stuff as well, and her like because she also really pulls on like Foucaultian ontology yeah. to look at how like bodies and ideas are, are constructed. I'm going to go to my second question first because I think this is quite um, integral to what you were saying. The chapter I think it's called. Um, the rise of a new sexual order I think it was that chapter you talk about the regulation of the homosexual body and the racial colonized body and you hold these two bodies up along with the prostitute's body as deviations from the norm and therefore the implications for public health I think there is a lot of like rhetoric around the sex working body as being this like vector of disease that's something we see a lot it's definitely something that's come up again during covid like who are these disgusting sex workers to keep working don't they know what risks they're running but when you talk about the homosexual body and the racialized colonized body and any of these other deviant bodies is this one of the ways that queering international political economy Mm. was integral to your argument and could you maybe explain what you mean when you talk about queering political economy because I know that was also a huge part of your book yeah um so I'm I'm so glad that you uh picked up on those threads as you know they were really really important to the book so I'll maybe try and take some of them in turn if that's okay I don't think I've asked you actually what the book is about I think I might have even forgotten to ask you that Oh, so the book is, um, it's trying to offer a history, it's trying to bring together the history of capitalism with the history of sexuality. So it's trying to argue that we actually can't see what, we can't understand one without the other, Mm -hmm. because they have tended to be treated as very separable. So 
IPE would would focus on capitalism, but not look at the sexuality stuff. Whereas queer theory often, yeah, has um, focused on sexuality, but not not always engaged with questions of capitalism. So it's sort of trying to bring together those um, those those fields, but also those those concerns. And I I sort of try to tell this story not by offering a kind of all encompassing here is the history of capitalism and sexuality, but rather um, trying to offer quite a specific one, trying to ground the analysis um, and kind of anchor it in a specific site. And the the site I focus on is uh, the history of sex work in in Britain. So that's where sex work comes in, because I uh, had anxiety, because, you know, anyone doing a big writing project knows that, you know, it's such an integral part of the process is, the anxiety is this going to come together um and I had worries throughout you know is this a story of sex work or is this a story of capitalism and it was really towards the end that I realized that I couldn't tell the story of capitalism without the story of sex work so it it kind of came together but that wasn't until you know later in the stage of writing it sure so sorry for that deviation but let's bring it back to that question about how holding up the prostitute body and the homosexual body and the racial colonized body is that one of the ways that queering international political economy was central to your argument yeah so um so the, the so the my, my primary aim was to view capitalism sexual relations through the lens of sex work and so as part of that i do often focus on the what what has been called you know deviant heterosexuality but an important thread that nevertheless does run through the book is how, you know, uh, the, the histories of sex work are very kind of entangled with uh, LGBTQ histories. And so the, looking at the regulation of the homosexual body is, you know, really, is really something I was really interested to, to learn about and to write about. And um as as um scholars such as Cynthia Weber have shown we can't understand the kind of the, the homosexual body without bringing in the racialized colonial body too uh, so these figures kind of coalesce so for example in the 19th century homosexual homosexuality or same sex uh, sexuality started to become more thinkable you know something that that could exist for sexologists at least but this was in ways that uh, well this was this it was thinkable for some homosexual bodies and in particular the white middle class homosexual body so long as it was kind of sexually chaste Mm -hmm. Um, but this was in turn made possible by marking out um, the more tolerable figure of the homosexual from uh, what Cynthia Weber would call deviant, uh, uh, the, the, the deviant ho- uh, homosexual, and especially um, uh, the colonial others, but also male sex workers as well. And indeed, colonial men and mascul- masculinities were often associated both with homosexuality and with sex work. And these uh, discourses also connected with, uh, you know, questions of public health, uh, as you've said, with these deviant figures represented as a as a as a kind of threat to the vitality and health of the nation, read in turn as the English race, 
And of course, um, more widely, it's so important to, you know, to think about um, how capitalism's sexual history is itself a story of colonialism, you know, in that colonialism was a, if not the central mechanism through which capitalism could come to dominate globally. So I guess in terms of the, the, the books, the gender of trying to queer IPE, I guess what I was trying to do was to bring together these disparate threads. I keep on I keep on using the term threads, <laughs> but it's because I, I do imagine it as a kind of like a tapestry somehow. Absolutely, um, <laughs> sure. This is you're put, I feel like you're pulling yeah. together these ideas that have not that do feel quite disparate. Right, right. So I it I mean it makes yeah. sense, doesn't it? Yeah, I need a better metaphor, but um, <laughs> but to, to to sort of try to bring them together, weave them together. To, to explore, you know, uh, what Foucault would call the history of the discourses, but but not just of sexuality, but also of capitalism. So for me, I guess the the kind of queer uh, queer political agenda, queer political economy agenda I wanted to kind of explore was this historicizing agenda. But but I wouldn't ever want to say that that is the form that queer political economy must therefore take. I think it's so important that, you know, to see queer theory, but also uh, queer political economy as terrains of debate, not as kind of blueprints that we, you know, so I wasn't trying to create a blueprint, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course. I mean, I did my master's at Sussex and Cynthia Weber was one of my tutors for queer international relations. And we looked at the body of, say, the, not the body of, but like the figure right. of the the queer migrant, right, right, or like the effect of say the Olymp- the Olympics on like poor bodies mm. and and how they're treated, and I right, I think right. that it would be, you know, a disservice to both students of right. economics and students of queer right. theories to not be able to bring these things together. Yeah, yeah. Um, interestingly, I just this morning listened to a talk by Julia Late, who's a historian, and she was talking about sex trafficking, and she was saying how this, like, this abolitionist movement of the Victorian times that constructed what they would refer to as prostituted women as, Mm. like, poor and vulnerable and in need of being saved, Mm. they didn't seem to think that actually maybe people of colour who were actual slaves needed to be saved it was just the poor white women that needed to be saved and she julia late draws this really interesting distinction of like how um i guess just the effects of colonialism on how we construct vulnerability Mm. if that makes sense but that brought me back to my question on um in your chapter sex work in the victorians right because I, in their book, Revolting Prostitutes, The Fight for Sex Workers' Rights, Molly Juno and uh, Molly Smith and Juno Mack, who are two sex worker rights activists in the UK, they refer to the legal framework of prostitution in the UK, which is partially criminalised, which is like buying sex is legal, selling sex mm. is legal, but all the other kind of aspects of sex work are illegal. And they talk about this, legal framework as the Victorian hangover because of these Victorian discourses around sex work and sex workers. Can you maybe tell me a little bit about this Victorian chapter of your book and why you think this hangover Mm. persists now? 
it's it's such a brilliant term, Victorian hangover. It really it really captures uh, you know the the interconnections. Um, so um, so in that chapter of the book, uh, chapter three, um, what I I guess I was trying to do overall was to look at how how is it that sex work you know was made into quote the greatest social evil ever in the 19th century because it prior to then it it had been positioned as a kind of threat to the social order but there hadn't been it hadn't been constructed uh, as a kind of threat to the vitality of the kind of English genus or uh, is that how you pronounce it might be genus Genus. yes I think I'm Um, not sure so so I was looking at you know how, how what was going on there um and what this did in terms of really cementing into place the public-private split that had, you know, really emerged with the transition to capitalism, with, you know, good white bourgeois women being firmly secured into the home and kind of kept there by this looming figure of the common prostitutes, um, in a in a in a way that makes me think of uh, the shadow monster in Stranger Things, you know that that <laughs> this omnipresent existential threat to to um, uh, proper femininity. So it's sort of looking at what you know how that happened and and what was going on there. Um, at, at the same time as sex workers were being you know constructed as in this in the sense of this this looming threat, they weren't though just being depicted as criminal figures, as, as they have been uh, primarily, you know, in medieval and early modern England, because this was the time when they were increasingly depicted less as vehicles of sin and more as vectors of disease, as Jane Schooler so perfectly puts it. So the chapter looked at, looks at this and, and also how it sort of formed part of a wider shift in the social ontology from the religious to the scientific, which, you know, obviously this is the kind of thing that Foucault, or I, I draw on Foucault here, because in medieval times, the big authority was the church. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't science so much as religion. But with the emergence of you know, the dominance of science, uh, science and especially the medical profession, you know, could be established as the source of truth, as the uh, as the authority, as I think Jeffrey Weeks um, looks at as well, and so the regulation of sex work was both constituted by and constitutive of this wider shift. And I just want to go off on a tiny. It's relevant, but absolutely, absolutely, like tangent. I think what was so what was really important here as well, and bound up with all of this. Was this this was when we saw discourses of sex itself in terms of especially sexual difference, so the sexes, you know, how 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 this was being made into something that was biological rather than um, spiritual or that kind of thing. So in medieval times, what it meant to be, say, a woman or a man had been understood in, uh, by many medieval scholars uh, in terms of the one-sex model, where women were imperfect men, and you know, ra- rather than that they were fundamentally different from men. And so, and the key division had not so much been, you know, 
between men and women, but rather between body and soul. But in the 19th century, that's when these kind of biological explanations, the social hierarchies really came to dominate, which, of course, we still see in playing out today uh, often. And I think that David Greenberg and Marsha Bristrin's point is important here that these discourses of biological, fundamental biological difference served a really important political purpose because they allowed social inequalities to be explained away in new ways. And in particular, appeals to inborn or innate biological differences rose to prominence precisely at the time when it was no longer possible to blame widespread poverty on uh, personal sinfulness. So from the outset, conceptions of fundamental biological differences in terms of sex, race, class, sexuality, did really important work for capitalism by allowing collective action problems to be blamed on individual traits. And they, you know, they continue, we, see, we see this, the imprint of this still playing out today. So overall, then, there are, there are all these kind of connections with the past that continue to play out. I haven't talked, <laughs> I haven't veered away from the question of sex. Work. No, but I think that is so... Right. It's not only fascinating, but it is really relevant, I right. think, because when people can be, I guess, biologically or scientifically, mm-hmm. um, if, if, if it can be shown that there is this scientific, right. like, innateness, yes. then, and then you've brought this up in your other writings as well, then people can be known and they yes. can be disciplined. And that's also right. a very Foucaultian thing. Yes. And we yes. do still see this now, this argument, and we see this around, like, there are groups of people who don't consider trans women to be women and they pull on the biological innateness of women to kind of really try Mm. and eradicate trans women from having rights or spaces in in public. So I do feel like it it is hugely relevant to Mm. your argument. And it's also fascinating, I think, um, Mm. that this idea of like fundamental truth of what, you know, race and class and sex is actually not that, old it's like actually fairly new fairly western way of thinking and and so this notion of that 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 there were sexes that I think it's important or I find it helpful to think that what so that you know the notion of sex had existed but the notion of fundamental biological differences and that was something called sex that was you know that that was you know that is a kind of arguably a modern invention um so um yeah so sorry I, I'm, I'm worried that I've I've moved too far away from sex work there um, no it's fascinating I think that I mean it's interesting because to me when we talk about sex work it's it can never really just be about sex right. work and I think that actually yeah. the figure of the sex worker is such an interesting figure to look at and I say it sounds objectifying like I say this as someone that has been a sex worker for like 10 years I I think that the figure you know because I I look at the body of the sex worker in like a neoliberal context and I think that you can say well in some ways the sex worker is this ideal neoliberal subject because she's self-actualizing and she earns her own money and I'm using gender terms here I know that it's not just women that sex work but also there are these like neoliberal responses to Mm. sex work that are quite moralistic and quite punitive so I feel like when we talk about sex work sex or sex workers 
it can never really just be about that it like I, I yeah I find it quite fascinating as well and um in a way I as as someone who does a lot of sex work activism the the bonds that we try to build between sex workers and the LGBT community or sex workers and the gig economy or sex workers and migrants or sex workers Mm -hmm. and you know trans uh trans rights because there are these all these unifying traits Mm. does that does that make sense so I totally get it um and plus as well, you know, there is no one sex worker to be right, known. It's, right, it's right, right. so difficult to, yeah, yeah. to try and group them, to try and know them. Um, but talking about neoliberalism, one thing that you talk about in your book, and I think it was in the Buying Love in the 20th Century chapter, which is chapter right, four. Right, right, right. You say the figure of the sex worker had come to person personify profligacy, in both senses of the word in that it was the sex worker was someone who earned a lot of money and was very successful at earning money but was looked down on for spending that money and I I think that is quite a gendered thing and quite a racialized thing Mm. as well because these ideas of like people wearing lots of gold or wearing lots of jewelry or lots of designer clothes I think that this is idea that it's trashy and classless which is codified language it's it's something that like rich white men like it's it there's such different standards there so I'm wondering how the how when sex workers come to personify I cannot pronounce this word profligacy in both senses of the word how if at all do you think this plays into arguments of neoliberalism Mm. which is that yes you should earn lots of money but no you cannot enjoy it Mm. yeah it's I, it's such a brilliant question. It really sort of brings to life to to me that there's there isn't just one kind of single logic here. I think that there are it seem to be either contradictions at work, and and that those contradictions are kind of generative. It's so fascinating, I think, to to think about how women have at one level been you know encouraged to be the consumer consumers but at the same time women's consumerism has also long been accompanied by all these you know very moralizing discourses and not least that of the profligate woman I don't know if I've I've pronounced the word uh, right myself there um I think you got it right um and what this means is I think I think what's going on here is that you know women uh, uh, women can be consumers, but as long as this is kind of contained and channeled in the right kind of way, and in particular, to you know this is trying to make sure that this serves the family and and serves heteronormativity perhaps, and that I think does make sense because capitalism doesn't ju- it needs us to be good consumers, it needs us to buy stuff. Mm-hmm. But it also needs us to be, so it needs us to be good consuming subjects, but it also needs us to be good productive subjects because we need to work to earn the money to buy the stuff. But it also, on top of that, needs good reproductive subjects, i.e. people to do reproductive labour to make and care for the workers who earn the money uh, to pay for stuff. Uh, and this reproductive uh, labour so often falls to women, and you know, especially 
women of colour, micro women and so on, single mothers. Um, and so uh, I guess one of the effects of the profligate uh, woman discourses has been to, to, to try and channel any money that women might earn towards and into the family. And so this is where sex work comes into play because this is where the kind of looming figure of the sex worker has been used as a kind of bogey woman or symbol of bad women who are greedy and materialistic and wasteful. Um, So in other words, women can earn money and even lots of money and they can spend it, but they can't be seen to waste it or enjoy it in ways that might be viewed viewed as wasteful or profligate. And what would be wasteful? Well, it's not you know channeling it to, towards the um the, the family and i think when neoliberalism really is important here as well is that um we need that money to be channeled towards the family to be channeled towards the household for the reproductive labor to be done because what we're witnessing is the privatization of social reproduction the stripping back of the welfare state um you know the the the, the seizing of the commons and so what is left is households families to do you know this reproductive labor so I think um my sense is that those are the kind of forces at work so yes women can spend money but that has it has been the right kinds of ways and you know even spending money on self-care but what are women exercising self-care for it's so Mm -hmm. that they can you know not under the weight of the patriarchy absolutely (laughs) you know productive reproductive labor absolutely it's so it's interesting because like I'm a woman and I've chosen not to have children and I a few years ago I got sterilized because I knew I didn't want to have children and it was a decision I made and I didn't think and I still don't think it's particularly controversial but you know I was sex working at the time I was earning lots of money and there is this scene as like well if you're not having children and you're using all that much spending all that money on yourself that's quite selfish and it's like there was kickback to certain choices that I'd made and I it's interesting as well because when you talk about women should spend the money on the family I'm doing a lot of research at the minute around sex work and motherhood and these seem to be two very different, very disparate identities that you cannot be a good mother if you're sex working. And if you're sex working, you cannot choose to be a mother. Like, so being a sex worker who earns lots of money, of course, they're not going to spend it on the family because what it's wrong of them to have children. And we still see this now, like for a lot of outreach services, if sex workers have children, it's for some, it's a real safeguarding issue. Even though one doesn't, necessarily kind of impact the other um which and this kind of leads me to my next question which is something that I I think about quite a lot and you write that the heteronormative family was the source of love affection and emotional security the place where our need for stable intimate human relationships is satisfied and prostitution has been constructed as everything that is insecure unstable unintimate and above all a distortion of love and I read a paper once a while ago where the author suggested that clients of sex work the clients of sex work are queer because they are 
criminal outlaws and they have sex outside of you know gail rubin's charmed circle as in not reproductive not with their partner paid for whatever and i've always maintained the opposite of these two positions like Mm. i've always believed that actually and i and i do think that other sex workers agree with this position i've got friends who have like um you know, we've spoken a lot about this, Mm. that sex work actually allows the capitalist heteronormative family to stay together because not that it's a social good. I think it's really important that I'm just like, it's not sex workers are not providing a social service, nor can we expect them to think of themselves in that way. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that men who have an excess of money, who do not want to risk disrupting their family unit will go and pay for sex from a sex worker because that is separate. There's no emotional, there's no risk of disrupting the family unit. Like, Mm. so it it actually maintains it rather than the risks of an affair. Mm. So I wondered what your thoughts were on this. If if they went either way, you might not have any thoughts on this at all. I I really, really love your argument. It's, It's such an interesting way of thinking about it it actually also makes me think of um uh, Ruth Karras in Common Women um she talks about um uh that sex uh, sex work was tolerated precisely because it didn't you know it was a supplement to marriage it didn't and it kind of makes me think oh you know we got some kind of uh, a historical shift going on where maybe we're you know moving in that direction um, so I, I, I just think that's so fascinating. And I think um, it really highlights how helpful it is to think about sex work not as something that is external to the system. It's not that there's this system and then outside of that system is, is sex work. But sex work is constitutive of the system. Uh, so sex work isn't something, for example, that heteronormativity expels. But on the contrary, it's something that heteronormativity needs and, and not just for cultural reasons, but also for economic ones. So, I, I, you know, I, I, I couldn't, you know, couldn't agree more with your argument. I wonder if at the same time, I wonder if it might not be an either or situation, but if there might be a both and situation um going on because I I think about I mean I think about actually um one of the arguments in my book I really struggled between I was very inspired by Michelle Foucault's argument about the production of sexuality but I also was really um uh, sort of interested in Sylvia Federici's argument that actually non-reproductive sexuality has been suppressed yeah. uh, and so one way that I try and bring those together is, is to say okay it's a both and situation it is the repression of sex work and the uh, and the production of sex work um so for example in the 20th century there was this rapid expansion of the sex industry it was being transformed into really big business i think pornhub do you know the stats i i i a few years ago spotted that pornhub was getting more hits than amazon and netflix combined or something it's oh really, that doesn't surprise me in the slightest but, uh, <laughs> so it's, it's really really big business but at the same time there has been this kind of ongoing criminalization of uh commercial sex so i think it one way of looking at it is to kind of see it in terms of 
maybe an ebb and flow of the repression of sex on the one hand and then the production of uh, sex on the other that plays out in different ways at different, you know, different times. But I think um, economic inequalities and the consolidation of male economic power that we're seeing and that sort of thing, absolutely, you know, what, what you were saying at the start, um, you know, really makes sense uh, to see sex work as being like, really, you know, integral to that. I think because it's not a coincidence that most of the people that buy sex are men with oh. money and they're oh. buying it from women with no money. Like that's not, it, it yeah. speaks to, I guess, women's options and women's um, poverty and how, you know, austerity disproportionately affects women. And yet women are also supposed to be the caregivers and put all their energy into the home. So I yeah do you think it makes sense it's really difficult to say that argument about how sex workers kind of uphold this like um heteronormative family because I feel like I might be playing into you know sex work abolitionist feminists Mm. I feel like I might be playing into their belief that somehow this like underclass of women are being provided to rich men and that's kind of not what I'm saying nor am I advocating for that. Um, it's more that, I guess I, I'm just like the way that men see sex workers rather than the way sex workers see themselves, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to move on to one of my favourite parts of the book, um, which is when you talk about the Magdalene hospitals. And a friend of mine wrote her thesis. She's a, like a social historian on the Magdalene hospitals and like, Uh, the Magdalene laundries of Ireland and like you know the kind of women that were put there and why they were put there and in I think it was chapter two the rise of the new sexual order when you talk about the Magdalene hospitals and then you say how in reality they weren't places where women were looked after they were places where women were were put to work and forced to undertake manual labour and confessions were deemed to be an absolute essential part of their rehabilitation into like good women um and I really believe that this is still present in the Christian rescue industry today and and in Ireland Ruhama which is like an exit industry who get quite a lot of money they um to kind of I guess like help women exit the sex industry some of the nuns that work for them worked at the Magdalene laundries like the line is very very clear but uh people like uh, Laura Augustine and Elizabeth Bernstein write about the Christian rescue industry and they say how the only women that are um considered worthy of listening to are the ones who are actually repentant about their time in the sex industry and this is something that we see quite a lot in writings by you know maybe like Angela Dworkin, Andrea Dworkin and now people like Julie Bindle mm-hmm. where the only sex workers they actually want to talk to are ones who are no longer sex working and who are very sorry that they ever sex worked and are very repentant about it. That's quite like a tenuous convoluted mm-hmm. way of asking the question but I'm just wondering what your can you tell me about the argument you made in your book about the Magdalene Laundries and what your thoughts are on the line between their way of dealing dealing with um, women and what we see now in the Christian rescue industry yeah. and maybe what the Christian rescue industry is for people who don't know. So I, I, re- I think it is such a, you know, um, a, 
I'm really, it's such a great example of how the past inhabits the present as you as you've just shown and and I think your point about certain you know feminists carefully excluding sex worker narratives and especially those from sex worker activists you know really really brings all of those echoes to life and one thing that I found really interesting when doing the archival research for the book and it made me reflect on some of the work that I've done in the past as as an academic was how um in the 18th century, there, you know, there really was this kind of discursive explosion, as Foucault would put it, about sex workers. If you look at all the archives, it's it's amazing. Suddenly, these all of this stuff appears, and a lot of this took the form of testimonials from sex workers. So there's a lot about how a lot already been written about, you know, how. Uh, uh, statistics and quants emerge at this time, but also at, at this part as you know, bound up with those scientific endeavors were these, you know, uh, get, getting these testimonials from particular groups, um, and also there were like all these poems about dead and dying sex workers that appear in the archives as well, either real or imagined. And it was a kind of discursive explosion. Um, And all of this, I mean, it really makes sense to me that this formed part of a wider shift towards confession, as Foucault talks about, with sex workers increasingly expected to confess their sins in order to be redeemed in the eyes of the the uh, the public and this you know relates to Foucault's point that power is not only repressive but can also be productive but I think something that often gets forgotten when people critique Foucault there is that Foucault still saw productive power as coercive power so it's not a good you know it's not a good thing um it's just uh you know productive power is is more hidden and sneaky (laughs) form of coercion so either way we can see sort of confession as being uh coercive and the example of the, the Magdalene asylums that you've highlighted is such you know really shows how these practices of inducing and even compelling women to confess was you know was very directly related to economic logics because integral to their rehabilitation uh, was that they should be made productive so they should in order to show that they were being uh, reformed they would be be uh, productive subjects and and just in, as another aside we've also got to think about confession in the context of you know, the witch trials. I mean, women uh, very recently at, the, at this point in history had been uh, forced to engage in very public confessions at the witch trials. So there was that kind of very overt um, element of coercion as well. Um, and also, I would say, a hypersexualized form of coercive right. confession. Like, yeah. I feel like some of the language that I see around these confessions and it's just like it's it's almost pornographic in yeah. its obscenity when they talk about what women have experienced and what they've been through and what these women are expected to talk about. And that's something that was quite obvious in the witch trials as well, that, you know, um, it, it was just so overtly sexualized yeah. for something that was supposed to be, like, rehabilitative. Right, right. So, uh, absolutely. And so this was, you know, these, these confessions being extracted... Uh, all in the name of educating women, transforming them into good women, 
But in reality, as you know, as you said, you know, being forced to perform manual labor, um, often in the home, you know, the bourgeois family. So, you know, performing manual labor, you know, sometimes for <laughs> wealthy people very directly. And, you know, these dynamics, uh, you know, we can see these these dynamics continuing to play out. Um, Claudia Arado uh, writes about, I think, the, the psychological profiling of women who've been identified as, as having been trafficked. For example, you know, with these confessions being used to distinguish between, you know, the innocent and the guilty and, and um, if you're guilty, then being deported and all that sort of thing. Um, I think I think it's also important to, to if we're thinking back to the concept of confession being coercive, I, I think it's always important to remember that normative femininity can also be coercive. So regulatory gender norms don't just mark people out in, as deviant in ways that are very overtly repressive, but they also, that is the mechanism through which normative femininity is produced. And this goes back to the, you know, marriage whoredom distinction in the Middle Ages, where uh, whoredom was there in large part as a, as a kind of way of disciplining all women and so Absolutely. I think it's really helpful for feminists especially or, or including those in the, in the in the rescue industry to reflect on or to for, for, for feminism to continue to reflect on how feminism itself has so often been invested in normative femininity in ways that so often have propped up the institution of marriage and I think it's helpful to keep, or I find it helpful to keep remembering that marriage is an institution that has been historically produced out of women being the literal economic and sexual property of men. <laughs> marriage has not got a good history. <laughs> no, it, it's so true. And I think even because my PhD looks at sex workers experiences of domestic violence and one thing that comes up and this was my experience as well as a sex worker who was in an abusive relationship the violence that I suffered came from the home that's where it was that's not to say that sex work was a great job or that you know my clients were all amazing but that the place where I felt most at risk was at home with my boyfriend that's and for a lot of women that's where the risk is like you know two women a week are killed in the home in this country and yet even though you know radical fe feminism of the 70s really brought to light these inequalities of marriage I feel like the spotlight is very much on sex workers need help not married women like oh. that's where sex workers need the help um but I mean I think I'm anti-marriage for the same reasons that that you are like there was this thing in the news recently about how you know mothers can sign the marriage certificates now it doesn't have to be the father and I was yeah. just thinking that's not the feminist gotcha that you might think it is like it's like that I don't I, it was so bizarre um not that I'm mocking married mm. people but it, it was just such a it wasn't a win I think yeah. for feminism at all um but I yeah I think that's so interesting um, I'm going to move on to, I think it's the last chapter in your book, which is um, Deviant Heterosexuality in Austere Times. And it's here that I think you make the most devastating argument of the book. Um, and I feel like there's quite a lot we can talk about. But one of the things you talk about in this chapter is you write about how 
if we know or if we understand that women enter the sex industry because of a lack of other economic options, when poverty or austerity are not mentioned or not spoken about in home office reports or governmental reports or even the research and publications of abolitionist feminists, you show how the interconnections of poverty and sex work are noticeable only by their absence. Mm. And as someone that does a lot of sex worker activism, the main thrust of sex worker activism in this country is abolish poverty, don't abolish prostitution. Like, and even the English collective of prostitutes will say, like, we are the prostitutes against prostitution. Like, give us money and we will not sex work. That's what we need. Um, and I feel like we one of the main areas of literature that you pull on in this chapter is sex work activism and sex worker writings and I think that's partly because it's so contemporary as well but I am going to kick off asking about this chapter by saying like how did you engage with sex worker activist arguments and what if anything can academics learn from the literature of sex worker activism Thank you so much. I'm I'm so happy that you've asked me this because one of the big anxieties I had with the book was that I wasn't centering enough the voices of sex worker activists throughout it. And so I'm so glad that it doesn't therefore read as if I haven't been, you know, incredibly influenced by sex worker activism. Um, you know, and I would see sex worker activists as the voices who have most openly and consistently uh, challenged uh, the economy sexuality dichotomy that I tried to interrogate. Um, so while the book doesn't focus empirically on sex worker activism, it's absolutely shaped politically and theoretically by sex worker activism in that it sets out to uh, try to contribute to that wider project of exposing and contesting deep-rooted assumptions that sex is is some you know something natural um, and beyond uh, the political, beyond history, and 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 this notion therefore, and, and indeed beyond the economic. So, in other words, that sex cannot be work. Uh, hence that economic and sexual practices are fundamentally separable from each other. Um, and and more, more widely, I think your question um, sort of leads me to reflect on the different kinds of engagements that academic work can involve. They can be theoretical, empirical, methodological, ethical, political. Um, and... Um, I think one of the, the things that sex workers or my sense is that sex workers have been trying to really challenge now is that academics have so often engaged sex workers, but very, very specifically for the purposes of empirical research. And that's it. So, for example, by extracting data in the form of interviews, say, but that doesn't necessarily or automatically translate into, say, uh, into sustained political or ethical or theoretical engagement. Uh, and John Scott talks about um, uh, sex workers being uh, sort of positioned in scientific discourses, I think, in the 19th century as objectified subjects um, through testimonials and that kind of thing. And I, I think we, you know, 
I, I can see that those dynamics haven't um, fallen away. Um, I really love Heather Berg's recent book. I haven't had the chance to finish sure. it, but I think that is such a, right. It's such a, a a brilliant example of what what academic work can look like when it begins from the premise that sex workers are the experts. I think she was, just quickly, I think she was interviewed on this channel as well, so it's quite a good interview with her. Oh, brilliant. Oh, I need to listen to that. Uh, But also, not just experts, but also comrades, as she puts it in, wider struggles against, uh, you know, what she, I think she called the violence of work. Um, But, you know, alongside that, I can see how important it is for academics to make room for sex, make more room, make as much room as possible for sex workers to produce their own research, to share the expertise they already have. Um, so um, that that's not to kind of, um, that's not to downplay the very real structural pressures that exist in academia. And I do understand why, you know, academics would um, not you know w- w- perhaps be focusing on empirical research that kind of thing so I'm not trying to uh, crit- criticize anyone here at all sure. um, <laughs> um, so, but I do I do think it's you know really important for academics to do more to center you know sex workers who are academics and uh, sex worker activists and that that kind of uh, things obviously not in such a way that forces anyone to out themselves because we know that that's not always safe to do and I, I slightly worry when I think it's really brilliant when people do reflect on their positionality in their academic writing, but I worry when that becomes an edict and that to be a feminist or to be, you know, a good academic, you have to you have to do that because that isn't safe for everyone to do. You know, Absolutely. not everyone can do that. Um and also there can sometimes be um, other, you know, other kinds of, it might, you know, other ethical, political reasons not, not to do uh, that. So I think, um, I think one way forward, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, because you, 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 you know, but um, might not, might be to not propose one way forward, but instead to have a kind of, you know, plurality of resistances, as Foucault would put it, um, or, you know, we don't, I think I, I, read, I read a few years ago a brilliant uh, blog post that I need to find again. But I think the, the author was saying we, we don't all have to be in the same lane. We mm. can contribute in different kinds of, of ways. One final way. Sorry. No, please, <laughs> of course. Please, please, please. Um, so one final way that I wonder if what one way that academics might also be able to support the sex worker movement and this might be controversial, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, is actually by directing our academic gaze not onto sex workers, but onto the dominant discourses. So what we critique is the dominant discourses. So our, the, the academic gaze turns to, to that, you know, the power relations. Uh, so flipping our gaze so that, almost, you know, knowledge itself is and knowledge and power are what are being analysed. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that I love about The Revolting Prostitute, brilliant, brilliant book that all of my students on all of my courses are um, urged to, to read, is that that's precisely what that does. It's it's dissecting power and knowledge about sex work. Um, so so those are some of my my thoughts, but um, I, I'd love to, to know if you have 
No, I mean, I think that I loved your point when you say that instead of directing the gaze, the sex worker, it should be at the dominant discourses, because I was talking with a few friends and we're all kind of PhD students and we're, we're all we've all had history in the sex industry as well. And we were saying how a lot of research on the sex industry tends to be based, of course, on the research that preceded it, which means that mm-hmm. certain discourses keep being repeated and certain areas are constantly being overlooked, like, say, sex work and motherhood or, you know, sex work and kinship and the friendships that we have and sex work activism is very overlooked in research. And one of the reasons for that is because a lot of the researchers are not sex workers themselves and their only knowledge is based on other previous research. And so these discourses, it's very easy to see where they come from. And it's also, I guess, you know, that has a lot to do with where funding is allocated and what funders see as as pressing research. They might think that, and this comes back to your point, they might think that researching sexually transmitted infections is really important, whereas actually... Um, sex workers might be more interested in research that looks at I don't know like parenthood for example or like intimate relationships or engaging with um, the violence against women sector in a way that doesn't kind of uh, pathologize them but I also agree that I don't think there is one way at the minute I mean I'm working with my supervisors on my methodology chapter and I'm really trying to kind of come up with a, a, a way that everyone can use even when they, they haven't sex worked but it's really hard because I'm like I'm a white woman I'm obviously educated and I don't have any of the kind of oppressions that lots of other people especially sex workers do so it's it's really difficult I mean yeah I don't I wish I had an answer I I guess I did this um webinar recently about sex work and researchers and I think one of the reasons why some research is very empirical um, or very repetitive is because sex workers are quite hard to get hold of in um, if that makes sense like it's actually really hard for if you're not a sex worker to to find sex workers uh, because of criminalization and because of stigma as well I mean your book was one of the first that I'd read that engaged so thoroughly with sex work and literature, sex work, which is amazing. Um, no, it's not, thank you. It was really amazing to read. And I, I think that um, a lot of literature is disseminated by sex workers just for sex workers. And it's kept very kind of close to the chest in a way, because you don't want outsiders reading it, right? Because you don't want them to know what we do to keep ourselves safe or anything like that. Um, but yeah, I just, I don't have any other questions because I, I feel like there's so much in the book because when I was writing a list of questions, I was like, could I ask about like the trafficking discourse, which comes up quite a lot, or, you know, should I ask more questions on, uh, like the witch trials, for example, but because there was so much in the book, but, um, I'm just going to, I guess, wrap up by asking what you're working on next. Like what, which I know authors always hate being asked and they just hate (laughs) being asked that, but I'm, I'm very curious because, um, yeah, I'm just curious as to where you're going next. Great. And thank you so much for the for, for just the incredibly uh, kind and generous words. It's, I, I know I, I open by that bit, you know, it's it, it really is a very, writing a book is a bit, there's, there's a lot of anxiety and worry and you never, you feel it's never going to, 
see the light of day and that kind of thing. So it's, uh, you know, I hugely appreciate it um, when, you know, when when people read it and engage with it. Um, So so what I'm working on uh, now is a a book with the brilliant Millie Morris, um, which is tracing um, uh, discourses of poverty and obesity as sort of how have the two come to be coupled? So, um, in the contemporary moment, what's been going on there? Because we keep on hearing these these uh, uh, discourses of, of the, the quote greedy poor right at the historical moment when we've actually got uh, mass scale starvation. Uh, so what's going on there? How how has that happened? And and sort of looking at how that has been uh, historically produced. Fabulous! Thank you so much. Thank you.